What's happening guys? Sam Adams here and welcome to a brand new episode of the Jam Pack Report today for August the 26th of 2019. Of course, for those that are brand new to the show, welcome on in. And if you don't know, this is a daily gaming news podcast hosted five days a week, Monday through Friday on youtube.com slash Samuel Adams Media, as well as podcast services around the world for those that want the audio version of the show. It is available out there. Uh, but what are we going to be talking about today? A Metro 2033 movie is in the works, and it very well could break the curse of horrible video game movie adaptations. Do you know why? Because it's not based off of the game. Thank God. Uh, but that sounds like a really cool project. We will be talking more about that. In addition to this, we are moving on to esports with Dota 2 champions winning more money than top Wimbledon players. I'll talk about the future of esports, what's happening with this whole big chunk of change that Dota 2 players are getting, and how you could potentially get in on a chunk of that. Just kidding, you're not good enough. Uh, anyways, Riot Games has reached a settlement in its gender discrimination class action lawsuit. This is a follow-up story from something we talked about a couple of months back. I wanted to give you guys a conclusive end uh, to that saga. Then, Cyberpunk 2077 livestream is going to show off 15 minutes of gameplay later on in the week. Right around PAX, right around Gamescom, you know, it's that time of the year we're feeling fresh, we're feeling good. Cyberpunk, not that far out. Of course, coming in the spring portion of 2020, uh, but man could be a pretty good week for those fans of CD Projekt Red's newest big game. Then, for fans of WoW Classic, I have good news for you. The character limit is going away and more servers are there to pander to you and all of your obsessive compulsive playing. My god, it's going to be a bad week for a lot of people that have IT staff. Uh, but, not to generalize, I have more news for you. Guess what? Flash games, they were a big part of your childhood. Guess what? They could be going away, but not if a Newgrounds project has anything to say about it. And finally, did you know Sega has a different color for their logo in Japan? Follow-up question, did you care? Probably not, but we're going to talk about it regardless on today's show. Uh, but without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into today's top gaming news. A Metro 2033 movie is in the works. Variety reports various Gazprom media subsidiaries have come together to produce the movie, which is based on and I hate this name because it is so cool, yet I can never say it appropriately. <clears throat> Dmitry Glukovsky's novel, cool, made it. The novel was also the basis of 4A Games' wonderfully atmospheric 2010 shooter. Apparently, filming is due to start in 2020, with the Russian premiere set for the 1st of January 2022. Director and cast are yet to be announced, but Glukovsky is on hand to help out. Producer Valery Vedovich, Fedorovich, God, these are some Russian names, commented, The book by this Russian author has become known throughout the world, and it is embedded in the cultural code of sci-fi fans and gamers all over the planet. For us and Gazprom Media Holding, this is a dream project, the most ambitious and large-scale film that we have ever launched. We intend to invest an unprecedented sum in the production and promotion of this movie, both in Russia and abroad. And here, Glukovsky with a quote, Metro 2033 is my first novel. It played a very special role in my life, and despite getting numerous offers to adapt it for the screen, I turned them all down for over 10 years. In Russia, I didn't see any producers who could make a good screen adaptation of this book. It just seemed impossible, but now I finally met a team that I can entrust Metro with. Our ambitions turned out to be similar, to create a world-class blockbuster and stun even those who have read the trilogy and know it by heart. So as not to disappoint them, I am ready to become a creative producer of the movie, and help create it with both my advice and action. This is not the first time someone's had a stab at making a Metro movie. In an interview with VG247, Glukovsky said MGM optioned the film rights, but the script failed to go anywhere and the rights reverted back to the author. Apparently, the script is set 
for, of course, Metro 2033 and this MGM film, but it was in Washington, D.C., which did not fly. You would imagine this Russian-produced movie will not make that mistake, but as with all films related to video games, even as, in this case indirectly, believe it when you see it in cinemas. Now, of course, this would be a very successful film because of the nature of Metro 2033, and needless to say, video game movies do not have a good rap, and generally, for a good reason, they aren't good. Uh, that's just been the general premise behind most video game films. But this one has a different kind of potential because, again, it is based directly off of a book. Uh, that's also why I think The Witcher's Netflix series could actually do very well because, again, uh, whenever you are going to be watching The Witcher on Netflix, it is not connected directly to the game except they share a world. Uh, and so with Metro 2033 being adapted to the film, uh, I do think it could work very, very well, and I'm excited to see it because there is... Uh, a very high level of depth. There is a very deep atmospheric uh, kind of approach whenever you were talking about Metro that is very much so suited to the film itself and not even a game necessarily. I would say that Metro could be a better movie than it could be a game. And that's saying something in a big, big way. Of course, the Metro games, all phenomenal. Metro Exodus, one of the biggest games of the year. Highly recommend giving it a look if you like realism, if you like the atmospheric world of, you know, post-apocalyptic Russia and a uh, very barren landscape. Love the desolation in the game. But with that being said, a movie is in the works and it could be coming in 2022 to a screen near you, assuming you live in Russia. But it could also be coming to other people around the world. You know it is. I'm just playing with you. It's going to be coming. But Dota 2 Champions won more money than top Wimbledon players. Moving on to the next topic of the day. It was also the first repeat victory in the Internationals history. It's not just Fortnite champs who are making conventional sports players seem underpaid. OG has won Valve's the International Dota 2 Tournament for the second year in a row. The first time any team has won back-to-back, -back, pulling in a record setting. Get this. $15,603,133 out of an even larger $34,292, excuse me, uh, $34,292,500, God, I can't read numbers. There's a shit ton of money going around in the prize pool. Uh, basically, they won 15.6 out of $34.2 million. Let's go ahead and say it like that much better way to say it. That's not just the largest top prize in esports history. It could also be a windfall for each of the five team members. Ooh, there's an emergency outside. A little uh, ambulance going by, a little, little fire truck, little, little vroom vroom. Esports consultant Rod Breslau pointed out that an equal split of the $15.6 million prize would each give the OG players about $3.1 million. Tiger Woods, for context only, pulled in $2.07 million at the 2019 Masters. Even the Wimbledon singles champs, Novak Djokovic, oh my god, and Simona Halep took home $2.9 million each. While golf and tennis frontrunners may be more famous overall, there's little doubt that it's very lucrative to be a top-tier esports player. Even the runners-up, Team Liquid, raked in a collective $4,458,038, and that is slightly short of $892,000 per person. Before you drop your racket and pick up a keyboard and mouse, it's important to remember the caveats. The international may be huge, but it's the only one major event. Top-level tennis has three other Grand Slams besides Wimbledon. And unlike tennis or golf, even the most successful esports careers tend to be short as the necessary hyper-fast reflexes fade quickly. Nonetheless, it is hard to look at these figures without at least raising an eyebrow. Competitive gaming now involves massive amounts of money, and that makes it very difficult to ignore. And I would agree with that final statement. Again, just to reiterate, the International put out for the OG team 
$603,133 out of $34,292,599. That's a lot of cash. And I want to just say uh, that esports, people make fun of it. Even in the gaming industry, people are very hesitant about the future of esports. But I think that figures like this prove that funding is there. Uh, from the companies behind the games, from collective pools, there is money to be made in esports and where there is money to be made people are going to be doing a lot over the coming years because guess what people like money and they want to make that money they got to get that bread they got to obtain that grain and so however they need to do that whether it be playing a couple of rounds of dota from time to time you're going to need to do more than that but you understand what i'm saying they will absolutely get in on that uh, but I don't think uh, this is necessarily saying that esports is going to be bigger than contemporary uh, regular sports. Uh, I think that the payouts could be bigger for a, at least a few moments. Uh, but overwhelmingly, I think there is more money flowing into esports. There is more funding right now uh, than what you are getting from the classic sports that we've all kind of come to know and love. Because esports are new. They're exciting. They're something that's never been seen before on a scale like this. And so a lot of investors, a lot of early uh, believers in the tech early believers in the games are going to be getting behind them, and that's where you're getting all this money from. Uh, but again, congratulations to the winners. Of course, that's a lot of money. Uh, even the runners-up with over $890,000 a person, you're still making a ton of cash there uh, for playing a game, and that's good. Glad to see it. Love esports. Can't wait to see the future of them as time goes on. But now let's move on and talk about a follow-up story that we covered a couple of months back on an episode of the podcast. But Riot Games has reached a settlement in a gender discrimination class action lawsuit. League of Legends developer Riot Games has reached a settlement in a class action lawsuit against the company started by women alleging sexual harassment, a retaliatory company culture hostile to women, and violation of the California Equal Pay Act by Riot Games. In a joint statement made by both sides in the lawsuit, the plaintiff's attorney, Ryan Saba of Rosensabah, said this is a very strong settlement agreement that provides meaningful and fair value to class members for their experiences at Riot Games. No details regarding the settlement have been announced, which is awaiting court approval. For its part, in the statement Riot, CEO Niccolo Laurent says, We are grateful for every Riot who has come forward with their concerns and believe this resolution is fair for everyone involved. In a post on its website, Riot says it has been working on addressing the underlying issues behind this and other lawsuits against the company. Earlier this year, employees staged a walkout to protest Riot's attempt to force arbitration for new hires in an attempt to head off potential litigation from employees, a sign that Riot's work to build a better workplace is ongoing. And I think that here with uh, Matthew Cato, I believe I said his name correctly here, the senior editor at IGN, reporting on this story, uh, this final sentence right here, it's a sign that Riot's work to build a better workplace is ongoing. That's where this story should really end. This, of course, having a resolution is good in and of itself. It's good to see that this class action lawsuit is coming to an agreement that both sides uh, can agree on. But at the same time, this is not the final say. This is not the end of the road. I think that throughout every industry, there is a lot of work that needs to be done uh, to ensure that everyone is treated equally. And of course, a lot of people are going to be like, you know... Uh, PC culture, you know, coming in on the gaming space, PC culture, making things all... It, this is not a thing about PC culture. This is a thing about respecting each other. Uh, this is a thing about being comfortable in the workplace. This is something about getting work done and keeping everything else out of it. Just ensuring that the workplace remains the workplace for all people involved uh, and one that is comfortable, one that is inviting, etc., etc. You know what I'm getting at with this. Uh, but I'm glad to see that a class action lawsuit has, number one, been filed. Of course, we talked about 
about that a few months back, but on top of that, has a settlement that at least moves in the right direction, that rewards those that need to be rewarded, and that at least kind of nudges Riot to do a little bit more here. And of course, I think a lot of companies can take notes uh, from what has been happening on the home front here with Riot Games. But I did want to at least give you guys a follow-up as to what was happening with Riot, and they have officially, as I said, reached a settlement in the gender discrimination class action lawsuit. I'm sure we'll get some figures at some point in the future as far as what money exchanged hands. But a Cyberpunk 2077 livestream is going to show off 15 minutes of gameplay this coming week. Developers will also reveal more about the Pacifica District and different styles of gameplay. CD Projekt Red will share a 15-minute edit of Cyberpunk 2077 gameplay from Gamescom during a live stream next week. The stream will also include interviews with developers that will dive deeper into the Pacifica District of Night City and the different ways you will be able to approach your adventures in the gritty cyber world of the future. The studio also announced that it has a plan to serve up gameplay at PAX West next week, and that has been changed, and it will instead be streaming for more saw. The cosplay contest is still a go, but the developer's panel is not. There are many logistical and some creative reasons behind this decision, but the most important thing we want to say is that we are sorry for the change of plans, CDPR said. We know that many of you waited to meet us face-to-face -face in Seattle, and it bums us out that we won't be able to see each other there. The Cyberpunk 2077 livestream will get underway at 8 p.m. CEST, 2 p.m. ET, 11 a.m. PT on August the 30th. Of course, a quick Google can let you know when it is going to be available in your own time zone. And of course, it will be available on CD Projekt Red's Twitch and Mixer channels again, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on August the 30th, just five days away. Now, we are getting ever closer to the release of Cyberpunk 2077, which, number one, is very exciting because the game looks phenomenal. Uh, but on top of that, I'm glad to see at least we are getting a live stream, but slightly disappointed uh, to hear they're going to have to bail on their original plans to kind of host a big panel to show off their game, uh, to be on the show floor, etc., etc., and get involved with the cosplay contest. Of course, you never know what's going on behind the scenes when it comes to uh, how developers are preparing to launch their game, what's happening with Crunch, uh, uh, what work needs to be done. So totally understand the fact that they do, in fact, have to, you know, work on the game if they want to get out on time. Uh, but still, cool to see a live stream coming. I cannot wait to check out 15 whole minutes of gameplay from the brand new CD Projekt Red game that is going to be one of the most successful games, dare I say, of all time. Uh, I also saw a report that was talking about the map size. It is slightly smaller than The Witcher 3, but much denser and much more populated, according to the guys behind the game itself. So we'll see how the game lands when it launches next year, of course, coming, I believe, in April. Uh, I could be wrong about that, but uh, definitely coming towards the start of next year. And man, it's going to be a pretty good-looking big chonker in the gaming industry. But this week, you can't play CD Projekt Red's big, big new game. But uh, WoW Classic is coming out if you want to go back into the addicting, uh, you know, MMO, beat-em-up, questing thing that people love. Uh, WoW Classic is also going to be lifting the character limit, adding more servers for launch. World of Warcraft Classic is launching this week, of course, on August the 27th, and ahead of that, developer Blizzard has announced some important changes and updates. Starting off, Blizzard will eliminate the previous character limit of 3 per account. At launch, players can make up to 10 characters per realm. That works out to 50 across all classic realms. On top of that, Blizzard announced it will open four more classic servers to help what are expected to be potentially lengthy queues at launch. The four new servers can be seen below, and all of the names are pretty good, but Bigglesworth probably takes the cake. Of course, you have Incendius, a PvP server in the Eastern Time Zone, Bigglesworth, a PvP in the Pacific Time Zone, Old Blanche, a normal server in the Pacific Time Zone, and Westfall on an Eastern Time Zone, which is a normal server. 
For those lucky enough to be playing WoW Classic early, Blizzard said, if players see servers marked with full or high population, they should try to play on any of the new realms. We urge players on realms marked full or high to plan to play on one of the new realms to avoid the longest queues and to help spread the player population as evenly as possible and provide the best play experience for everyone, Blizzard said. WoW Classic bills itself as Azeroth as it was, and Blizzard says players can expect a faithful recreation of the original World of Warcraft, featuring character models, combat mechanics, and skill trees that are as they were more than 10 years ago. Access to WoW Classic is included with the standard WoW subscription fee, which is, of course, a very good deal. Uh, but overall, very exciting time, and I've said this before and I'll say it again on today's show. I'm not a WoW player, never been a WoW player. I tried to get into the game, I tried the free trial, just didn't grab me, you know, it's just not my kind of game. I'm not a big grinder, I don't really like to raid or anything like that, but man, let me tell you, I love to sit down and watch some people play World of Warcraft. There is a science behind it, there's an art behind it, and it is just so enticing and inviting to see. Uh, but overall, WoW Classic launching is going to be one of the biggest games of the year, and it's a game that's over 10 years old at this point. Very much so over 10 years old. Uh, getting close to 20, in fact, I believe, if I remember correctly. Hold on, World? I think it was 2005. Launch date. Uh, we had World of Warcraft in 2004, I apologize. So launching in 2004, finally getting a classic version of the game included with the baseline WoW subscription. It's going to be massive. I've seen people across Twitch prepping. I've seen people getting guilds together. It's going to be the nerdiest week imaginable, and I'm all about it. But if you do want to dive into WoW Classic, more servers are coming on top of that. A brand new character limit of 50 in total, 10 per realm. And man, that's a lot of characters. Uh, but you might be saying, why would anybody want more than one character? Uh, you don't understand WoW, my dude. Uh, people go hard on this game. I mean, they will be grinding uh, and leveling character after character after character for weeks on end. It is very addictive. It is like crack of what I understand. Uh, but if you do want to dive in and get a brand new addiction, now's the time to do it. And again, you can sign up for WoW via the Battle.net launcher. But... Maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe you want to play stuff like Happy Wheels. Maybe you want to play Farmville. But Flash is going away. However, you could still be playing these classic games. An open source Flash emulator is hoping to preserve a generation of Flash games. In a bid to preserve a generation's worth of Flash games, a new open source project hopes to create and share a Flash emulator. The project, which comes just a few weeks after Adobe announced plans to end of life Flash, hopes to secure a way to play Flash games in your browser via emulation. Mike Welsh, who has previously worked on the Flash to HD video converter, Swivel for Newgrounds, is currently leading the project. Over the past few months, Mike has been working on a way to play Flash in the browser via emulation, said an announcement on Newgrounds, thanks to PC Gamer. We were gonna surprise everyone this fall by suddenly supporting classic content here on Newgrounds, but it leaked early and the cat is out of the bag. You can see the progress at ruffle.rs. Written in the Rust programming language, the emulator called Ruffle is an open source project that also helps to create a browser extension that detects old Flash embedded code and swaps it with Ruffle, meaning you could visit any old website and the Flash will eventually just work. Newgrounds itself, a community of artists, game developers, musicians, voice actors, and writers who create and share user-generated content such as gaming, film, audio, and artwork composition, is going as far as to incorporate the tech in its own website so that it will natively run Flash projects regardless of whether the user has the plug in or not. We are adding a true slash false attribute to every Flash project to track whether it works in emulation, said Newground staffer and game developer Tom Fulp. The initial rollout will cover animated content, then gradually expand to cover more and more games. We will also be tracking which Flash games are touchscreen friendly because they will work on mobile for the first time ever. 
as Edwin opened, opened? Sure, why not? When news of Adobe Flash's upcoming demise was first announced, for many players today, of course, Flash is trash, a rickety plug-in for advert games and obnoxious video pop-ups that has been steadily sidelined by the major browser companies. But it's worth a quick refresher on what Flash has meant and means. Flash also meant Farmville, the greatest of Facebook's bucolic time wasters. Bucolic? Never heard that word before. And Candy Crush Saga, which made its debut on King.com in 2010. In fact, there was a period when Flash meant the so-called rich, that is to say animated or interactive browser-based experiences, full stop. Uh, and I think that's really what I want to drive home here. We wouldn't have the modern gaming industry without Flash. The way that many mobile games work today, the way that many franchises have risen to the top has been through the support of Flash. And so in the spirit of preservation, in the spirit of ensuring that these games can be played uh, for years and years to come, regardless of their fidelity, I think that it's good to have an open source Flash emulator that brings all of these games uh, to a modern audience. And on top of that, I will also say a lot of people are nostalgic for the Flash games. Uh, I remember playing them many, many times in elementary and middle school. Uh, whenever I should have been working, I was playing tons and tons of Flash games on various websites of various quality, but they killed time, and I have a small space in my heart for those games themselves. But of course, very cool to see Newgrounds getting behind this project in a big way. And again, I'm a big fan of game preservation. Uh, these are pieces of art, regardless of the quality of pieces of art. I mean, you could go so far as to say some of what Picasso made looks like hot garbage, but it's still fine art. And I think Flash games are similar. Make no mistake, I'm not saying many Flash games are like Picasso art pieces, but you, you understand my metaphor here. Uh, but if you do want to check out the project, of course, you can check it out on ruffle.rs if you did want to give it a look. But did you know, Sega's logo is a different color in Japan. That's right, indeed. File this under things I had not even noticed, yet alone thought to ask. Over the weekend, Japanese developer Yuchiro Kiyato, Kitao, I'm so bad at names, uh, I am Setsuna and Kristar, fame, pondered on Twitter why some Sega games had different colored logos than others. While this could have been some idle observation, it turns out he was onto something. Sega of America's director of production, Sam Mullen, confirmed Katao's, I believe I said that correctly this time, theory that yes, Sega uses a different color for its logo in Japan than it does anywhere else in the world. And of course, there you can see it. It is a bit lighter on one versus a bit darker on the other. I believe the bottom one is the North American worldwide version and the lighter one is the Japanese version which is what they say in the article right below the picture that I just tried to commentate on. It is not known why that's the case, but the shift took place in the early 2000s, so you will only notice it on games released after Sega quit the hardware business. Mullen tells me he has some theories, from a printing mix-up to the Japanese shade being more kid-friendly, but in almost a decade service with Sega, he's never got an official explanation. I want to believe that one day some intern saved the wrong color profile, the logos got split, and ever since, everyone has just run with it, assuming somebody made a call that nobody actually did. And so this this is one of those pieces that I wanted to talk about simply because it's funny. I don't know why I want to cover this, but it's one of those little history pieces. It's a piece of gaming culture that nobody can explain, nobody has any explanation for, and overwhelmingly, nobody really cares except for me and except for the people that love the overall gaming culture, gaming history. It's one of those little quirks that I'm sure somebody will talk about for years down the line. But regardless, that rounds out today's episode of the Jam Pack Report. Of course, if you are brand new to the show, I do hope you enjoyed what I brought to the table. But again, it is hosted five days a week, Monday through Friday on YouTube.com slash Samuel Adams Media, as well as podcast services around the world if you did want to give it a look or a listen. But until tomorrow, you guys have a fantastic rest of your day. I will talk to you soon and peace.